This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, in for Ryan Warner. The mood of voters is one of the most important factors in an election year. It can inspire them to vote or to stay home. Coming up, we'll talk to two strategists, one Democratic, one Republican, who believe that the mood of Latinos in Colorado could tip the balance of the election. First, as part of an ongoing collaboration with NPR and public radio stations across the country, we hear that voters are anxious, frightened, and angry. NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason takes a look at why. You can't talk to voters this year without hearing some pretty powerful emotions. And all the candidates are trying to show they get it. For Republicans like Marco Rubio, it's President Obama's fault. And a president that on 10 occasions around the world has apologized for America. Apologized. And this is why people are so frustrated. This is why they're so angry. That's why this election's played out so differently. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders' angry tirades have found a receptive audience. This campaign is sending a message to the billionaire class. Yes, we have the guts to take you on. Hillary Clinton has talked herself hoarse, explaining that she takes seriously the fears and insecurities of ordinary voters. They're worried that they're going to be left behind while the people on the top, the guys who always get ahead, keep taking, 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 leaving very little for anybody else. There's a lot of worry. And no one has identified with or stoked voters' anger better than Donald Trump. I will gladly accept the mantle of anger. Our military is a disaster. Our health care is a horror show. Obamacare, we're going to repeal it and replace it. We have no borders. Our vets are being treated horribly. Illegal immigration is beyond belief. There are lots of good reasons voters are so ticked off this year. Number one, says former White House aide Bill Galston, is the absence of the kind of broadly shared economic growth that makes the American dream possible. When you consider the fact that uh, household incomes are still thousands of dollars below where they were at the end of the Clinton administration, people have gone a long time without making a lot of progress and they know it, they're feeling it, and they're not very happy about it. Another big factor is terrorism. Whether or not you think ISIS poses an existential threat to the United States, after San Bernardino, there was no question that the war on terror has come back home. And that's scary. Then there's demographic change, says Harvard political scientist Daniel Allen, who points out that 2014 was the first year the majority of American kindergartners were minorities. So we're only a dozen years away from majority-minority voting cohorts entering into our voting ranks. So in other words... In some parts of the country in particular, there's just a sort of incredibly durable tradition of white political and social control. And that demographic transition is forcing to head the question of what happens now. This is why immigration has become such a flashpoint, particularly in the Republican primaries. Professor Roberto Suro is an immigration expert at the University of Southern California. One of the most illustrative things that has happened this year was in the way that Donald Trump switched from Mexicans to Muslims almost instantaneously. It was a simple pivot after San Bernardino. Terrorism and labor migration became one thing. And what that tells you is that it's it's not specific immigrants. It's not even necessarily immigration itself. But this becomes the vehicle to touch people's anxieties about a whole bunch of other matters. 
This year, immigration became all wrapped up in people's anxieties about jobs, terrorism, and the failure of government to perform basic functions, like policing the border. Exacerbating all these anxiety-producing factors is a gridlocked political system that can't seem to solve big problems no matter which party has control. And here, Republicans are angry at their own party's leaders in Washington in a way Democrats just aren't, says conservative analyst Henry Olson, author of The Four Faces of the Republican Party. And they've been listening to politicians who have been telling them for decades now that government can and ought to shrink quickly. And they think that when Republicans are elected, that that's what Republicans got elected on. So they are angry for things that they've been told they can have, but most people in politics know they really can't. Voters in both parties are angry at elites. But just like everything else this year, Democratic and Republican populists are pointing their pitchforks at two very different targets. Again, Bill Galston. For the Republicans, the anti-elite focus is on government and professional experts of all kinds. And for the Democrats and especially the more left-leaning Democrats, the focus is on economic and financial elites. And it's not clear, says Galston, which candidates will benefit most from all that angry anti-elitism when voters finally start going to the polls next month. Elections serve a number of very important functions, and one of them is to hold up a mirror to society. We learn something about who we are and what we're feeling and what we want through the electoral process. And a lot of things that are beneath the surface come to the surface during the intensity of electoral combat. And those feelings are defining the 2016 elections. Mara Lyason, NPR News, Washington. As we just heard, anxieties and anger are shaping the mood of voters this election. That includes Latinos, and their feelings matter a lot because their vote could be pivotal in our swing state. Nationally, the number of eligible Latino voters will hit a record high this year, but they've tended to vote in far fewer numbers than whites and blacks. Still, they could be the deciding difference. To Latinos, immigration is a big concern, but so are jobs, schools, and national security. We turn now to two strategists to see how this translates for both parties. Manny Rodriguez is with the Democratic National Committee, and he chairs the party's Colorado Latino Initiative. He's long been active in voter outreach. And Jenny Sevilla Corn, she's the Republican National Committee's deputy director. She's worked on Hispanic voting initiatives in Colorado over the years. The two spoke with Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner. Thank you for having Thank us, you. Ryan, and hello, Colorado. Latinos who did vote were critical in the last election, for instance, in uh, Republican Cory Gardner winning Colorado's Senate seat. Uh, but as we said, many also stayed home. Perhaps they don't realize their own power. What are you doing to ensure more Latino voters turn out this year? Uh, how would you answer that, Jenny? One of the things that the Republican National Committee has done is made a huge investment and put resources into the Hispanic community, but not typically like they used to, which was five months before an election, parachute in and tried to gain uh, the support of the Hispanic vote. What we did is we started our effort back in June of 2013 where we went in and we started hiring um, other Hispanic staff and we put together our Hispanic advisory councils, which is why you were able to see gains in Colorado. And what we did, this is a big first for the Republican National Committee, is right after the election's over, gearing up for 2016. And we do voter registration, we go door to door, we go to events. Manny, how about for the Democrats? Well, I think that what's helping us to get the Latino vote out this time around it's just the Republican message 
and the message has been pretty divisive regarding uh, how they speak about Mexican-Americans and other races, that a lot of the Latinos, especially Mexican-Americans, are pretty angry at some of these comments, especially around immigration. As you know, you know, immigration is a very personal issue. In almost every Mexican-American family, there is a relative or a friend or somebody that's associated with them that somehow is affected by the immigration problem in this country. And and so, Manny, are you saying that, that a Democratic strategy is simply to let the Republicans do what they're doing, or would you say that the Democrats have a Latino strategy outside of that? Well, there is strategies that Democratic Latinos have, you know, but it's a lot easier to organize now with the message that the Republicans are sending out regarding Mexican-Americans. Most Mexican-Americans are traditional voters, and they only vote during presidential election. So there wasn't very much of a strong, persuasive effort to get Latinos to vote. You mean in the 2014 off-year election. I, I want to talk to you both about what you're hearing on the ground from voters in mm-hmm. Colorado in a second. But Jenny, can you address this point that Manny has brought up, I think pretty specifically about Donald Trump and what his message about immigration, about uh, those from other countries, what that means for the Latino vote and the Republicans? Yeah, well, at the Republican National Committee, you know, we are the the ones who are putting the ground game down, and each of the campaigns run their individual campaigns. And what I can say is that we have the most diverse uh, field of candidates out there in history. You, we've got two Hispanics running. We've got two who speak Spanish. We've got a diversity, and there is no coronation. So we see that it's really going to be, this is a democracy, and this is up to the voters to get out to vote and pick the candidate that they'd like to see. And we're still, you know, we haven't even hit the first caucus yet. And us at the Republican National Committee, we are there to um, build the ground game. And I can tell you... Is that, that harder with, with Donald Trump in the lead? We are finding great success all across the country. We have already trained people who want to be trained to be political operatives called the Republican Leadership Initiative. We've already trained over a thousand and we've got quite a diverse field of candidates out there who are part of this. And we're going to train another 2000. We just had commercials that were aired during the last Republican debate where you saw the diversity, you saw the people's stories. And there's a gentleman, Mario, from Pueblo County in Colorado, who's one of our fellows who tells his immigrant story. And so, Donald Trump, is tiny no, so Donald, Donald Trump is no obstacle whatsoever? For the, for well, the I would Latino say there's definitely, com- there's definitely conversations happening about there about all of the candidates. You've mentioned Pueblo, and I'll say that the National Journal recently reported that when Republicans describe how they will rescue their standing with Latino voters in, in 2016, Pueblo is the place they point to, uh, and you've, mm-hmm. you've pointed there as well, Jennifer. Uh, Manny, let's get to this question of what you and other staffers hear from Latino voters on the ground, when you are knocking on doors, when you are recruiting volunteers, what are the kinds of things they tell you, issues-wise, well, the, the that matter? Majority, the, the majority of the Latino community in Colorado is, uh, well, like myself, where I'm almost 10th generation Latino, and, and most Latinos in Colorado that are registered and that are pretty loyal voters are offended by, by this message, because it's a constant profiling. We have to stand up and we have to vote against this message because it's hurting people from, from getting jobs, from, uh, 
you go even to a restaurant sometimes, and, and it's almost like you're not treated as though you were treated before because of some of these messages that are coming out from the Republican Party. And it's a lot easier. It's going to be a lot easier for Latinos to organize now because people are ready. In Pueblo, there was not that much of, a, of an organization to get the Democratic vote out. But I think now that Latinos are organizing again, and it's to get rid of this message that's being sent out. And beyond and, beyond, um, perhaps what you perceive as the fear of the Republican message, can you tell me about some of the issues you're hearing from Latinos when you're going door-to-door? What are the issues that matter to them outside of that? The main issue is always is, is jobs, you know, higher wages, uh, better health insurance, it's, you know, education, trying to get better schools for their children. Uh, but some of these messages that are coming out from the Republican Party is they're just talking about building fences and, uh, you know, that's the only conversation you hear at, on these debates. You watch these debates and it's some of this, if, if, if you're a Mexican-American, it's ugly. Uh, you, you say that uh, the Republicans, in your mind, have been speaking rather aggressively about, about immigration, but I want to note that deportations have hit record levels under the Obama administration. You could say that he's been much more aggressive than any president in four decades. Uh, as I said before, Latinos overwhelmingly voted for Obama. How do you square that? No, I, I questioned this, too, at, at the National Committee, is why is the president deporting so many uh, Mexican-Americans? It's almost uh, the important to be done by Congress that, you know, they have to be satisfied. These beds have to be filled and... and and they keep deporting people. Doesn't the president wield some power in that regard? I mean, the, the Department of Homeland Security is is his. He, he's the, the leader. Yes, he, he's tried with this with his, with his executive orders, but as you know, they're now pending in court, and I guess we'll know in a couple of months whether undocumented people will be allowed to stay or have some kind of uh, way to become citizens and be able to work in the United States. Jenny, do you want to address the immigration issue? Yes, thank you, Ryan. And one of the things that we do in the Hispanic community is shed light on the truth. We can, you know, hit Republicans all day long about this issue, but the truth is also on the other side. And so, you know, when Manny's talking about the answer to this issue, the president absolutely has um, jurisdiction over deportations. When he was campaigning heavily in the Hispanic community the very first time in Spanish, saying that I'm going to do immigration in my first hundred days of being president, guess what? He didn't do it in his first hundred days, and he didn't do it in his first two years when he had a veto-proof Congress. And instead, he put immigration as a back burner passed health care, and then five months before an election, passed DACA because it was politically expedient. You can't play political football with immigration. It's disingenuous to say that he has done what he can on immigration. And that's a real conversation we're having with the Hispanic community. DACA, you mentioned, uh, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Jenny, can you talk to me about conversations that you or your staffers are having uh, in Colorado with Latino voters, the issues that they point to. Yes, absolutely. The number one issue that really strikes us is education. We attended Fiestas Patrias. We had U.S. Senator Cory Gardner attend, Congressman Kaufman. And this is a very large Hispanic event um, with about 90,000 people. They get, you know, huge crowds. And one of the biggest issues that we talked about was 
education. Education when it comes to school vouchers, to choice in school, to grading of schools, merit pay. It's kind of the model that Florida and now Governor Martinez and New Mexico have adopted because Latinos' parents don't feel like they have enough control over their children's education. And a zip code shouldn't dictate what kind of education your child is going to have. And so overwhelmingly, and this is across the board, whether it's Democrat, Independent, Republican, education seems to be the unifying issue within the Hispanic community and choice. May I get you to reflect on whether Latino voters have this anxiety or anger that we heard reflected in Mara Eliason's report, this idea that there is anxiety around some fundamental things, be it national security or economic prospects. Do you feel that more this election than, than others, Manny? Well, I'm also a Vietnam-era veteran, and uh, a lot of the veterans talk about issues regarding security, and most of these people that I talk with were, were in combat and have belonged to families that have always fought in wars and all the way going back to World War One and even before that, that have been fighting for this country. And they're always concerned about, about security. But the thing that we're always concerned about is that we're the, we're the troops on the ground. We haven't been officers of, of the military till probably started after World War Two, and maybe a few in Korea, and now we have many more. But we're always concerned about our kids because they're the ones that end up going to these wars. You know, when you talk about boots on the ground, you know, you're talking about human beings. You're not talking about boots. So Latinos are very sensitive to security measures. How would you answer this question, Jenny, about anxiety or perhaps an anger? Is that something you see reflected in conversations with Latino voters this election and perhaps more than others in the past? I would say across the board, people's attention is turned to national security and what is our next president going to do about it. We definitely hear that issue. And I think you saw the the turn after Paris and San Bernardino of people's attention to national security and how important that issue is. Let's wrap up with a question about the message to convert those who just don't plan to vote, who don't feel engaged, who don't see themselves as having power in this regard. For those Latino voters, let's imagine that person has opened their door. They have about, I don't know, 20 seconds to hear your message. The phone's ringing at the same time in their living room. What do you say to them? Manny? Well, I would say that this is probably one of the most important elections that they've ever participated in. Because if we don't win this election for the Democrats and the Republicans win the way they're going now, we may go back 50 years to the days when when there was Operation Wetback. They were taking innocent people such as myself or my mother and my father and throwing them in trains and taking them all the way back to Mexico. Where we don't need, we've never been from Mexico, but they're taking us back there anyway. And there's going to be that fear, that fear that we're going to revert back. Jenny, what would your fast message be? I would say to all the Latinos out there who may not think about voting, the Latinos uh, are growing exponentially, our population. 50,000 Hispanics turn 18 every month. Your vote counts. My grandparents came here, and I'm sure yours did too, or or you yourself, for the American dream. And we want to make sure America stays strong and there's opportunity for all because in 2050, Hispanics are going to be 
$132 million in this country, and we need to be part of the solution. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Manny Rodriguez chairs the Colorado Democratic Party's Latino Initiative. Jenny Sevilla Corn is the Republican National Committee's deputy director. Coming up, birds that live in unexpected suburban places as development encroaches on their habitat. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Morton. Traffic noise makes it harder to hear me, so I have to adjust my volume. It's a reality of city living. Well, it turns out nightingales do the same thing, singing louder on weekdays than on weekends when fewer cars are around. Elsewhere, crows have been known to drop walnuts in the road so that passing cars crack them open. These are two examples of how some birds adapt to urban life, but other species aren't as resilient. Ornithologist John Marsliff writes about this in his book, Welcome to Suburbia. He's a professor of wildlife at the University of Washington and joined us in front of an invited audience in our performance studio during his visit to Colorado where development is happening at a fast clip, leaving wildlife to figure out their future. John, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. You grew up in neighboring Kansas, where your father was a real estate developer. And you had a very simple question when you were about 12 or 13. And it's a question that really is at the heart of this book, Suburbia. What was the question? Really, the question was simply what was going to happen to the birds and deer and other wildlife at the end of our street when a new development was going to go in. What would happen to them? Would they be displaced? Would they stay somehow and adapt? Would they adapt? get a new spot someplace? What was, uh, what was their future? And this question, in some ways, dogged you for decades, didn't it? It did. And it, it's not an easy question to answer. I mean, you have to have marked animals to follow and, and see how they respond to this sort of change in their environment. And fortunately, in Seattle, we were able to do that by marking thousands of birds, individual birds, and following their movements and their life trajectories, their reproduction, who they mated with, uh, how successful they were, how long they lived, as developments changed the habitat right around them. And this work has implications for, I suppose, the rest of the world, but certainly the rest of the West, where development is, is happening, as we said, at a fast clip. Absolutely. I mean, Denver is a great example. The development in the, along the Front Range is almost unparalleled in the U.S. But all of the rapid development here, and especially the sprawling development into relatively wild lands, is occurring in the western U.S. You write, in the U.S., a million more acres become urban each year. Uh, you quote a Harvard ecologist who says an urban tsunami is on the horizon. And here in Colorado... 86% of people now live in an urban or suburban area, according to the state demographer. So how mindful do you think that development is of birds and other wildlife? Or is it just thinking of people? Well, of course, the primary reason for development is for people. And it's certainly an economic uh, engine that drives it as well. But I think there's more and more concern, especially in the West, about wildlife and birds in particular. People like birds. Property values actually are benefited by proximity to birds and other green space. So actually, I'm, I'm pretty surprised at how many new developments have covenants and the like that are tailored to increase uh, the friendliness of that area for wildlife. What would you see in covenants? Typically in covenants, they will have set-asides for natural um, habitat, and you won't be able to bring in 
non-native plants or fill that has weed seeds and things like that in it. You have to get these from sources that are approved uh, by the state typically. But the most amazing example I saw was recently just from Bozeman, Montana. And the covenant there, the number one thing it stated in this place that's all kind of grassland, it looks like it could be right here on the front range of Colorado. The number one thing was that you could not have an outdoor cat at this place. And they went on for a paragraph in the homeowner covenant to say why it was important to keep cats inside for birds and other wildlife. You have in this book a series of commandments to keep uh, where we live and work safe for birds and other wildlife. And the only commandment that gets an exclamation mark from you is keep your cats indoors and tell us more about why. Yeah, and I don't want to be, you know, overly presumptuous with this commanding, but certainly this is an important fact that scientists have found throughout the United States and around the world that where cats are introduced and allowed to roam outside, they do great damage to native wildlife. They've extinguished some species on small islands, for example. But around urban areas in the United States, the best estimates, and these are carefully done, are somewhere between 1 and 4 billion birds a year killed by cats. And these are cats that are not only feral, but also ones that are coming and going as pets. You went into this with a bias. You say you're not really a city person. And quote, everything I've learned as a conservation biologist tells me cities are bad for biodiversity. What did you find? Well, we found really the opposite. I mean, cities have a downside. They definitely negatively affect some species. But on the whole, on the sum, uh, they have higher diversity of birds in particular than nearby uh, refuges or parks and nearby very uh, heavily developed city centers. So certainly the center of the city has low diversity, but that suburban place, that sprawl that we think of as the worst thing for wildlife, it's actually very diverse. This is what you call suburbia. Right. It's interesting. You visit two parks, Yellowstone and Central Park in New York City, (laughs) to compare species. What did you find when you compared those two? Well, It was lucky I was able to go to them within a few days of one another uh, by chance. And what I found with respect to birds was pretty much the same number, actually a few more species of birds in Central Park than in Yellowstone. And this was in the early spring. So a lot of migrants weren't there. These were resident species that were there. When it came to mammals, however, I found very different result. In Yellowstone, you have the full mammalian ecosystem there. You've got wolves and grizzly bears and everything else on down the line. And in Central Park, you basically have people and cats and dogs and a a few small uh, rodents running around. Right, some squirrels. Squirrels. You know, but to push back on your idea or your misconception, I guess, that cities are bad for species, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who say that cities are the best ways that people can live because of their compactness, their overall energy efficiency, So maybe they're not in and of themselves uh, that hospitable, but they're better for the planet because they reduce greenhouse gas emissions or they avert sprawl, you know? Yeah, they do. I mean, that's a positive effect, and that's a long-term and and large-scale effect that they have on the biota. But what struck me is that the sprawling area, I mean, actually it was rated as non-habitat by my state wildlife agency. I saw a map of wildlife habitat in Washington state, and all the suburban and urban areas were given a zero score. So they just wrote it off. But actually, when you go and look there, and as others have looked around Colorado, looked around other places in the U.S. and around the world, 
we've found incredible diversity within cities. Even in New York City, a decade and a half ago, a new frog species was discovered. So these are not deserts for, for biodiversity. And I, I just think that it's not as simple as saying we need to live in a compact city and then save all the rest for wildlife. Because one, I don't know if that's really going to happen. And two, that takes out the middle ground of this kind of sprawl development that's a mix of different habitats where an awful lot of species do very well. Well, what is it about that sprawl that attracts birds in particular? That's your outlook as an ornithologist. How is it that we're building our homes and office parks in such a way that they want to be there? Well, I think birds like a lot of the same things we do. Um, They like some green space, uh, which we find comforting as well. And so in these developments that go into large areas, they set aside some green areas and and there's parks and recreational places close by like golf courses. Um, Those sorts of places mix up the landscape. So what might have been all prairie around here or all forest in Seattle is now a mixture of both. And so you get some species from both of those sorts of settings, plus some aquatic species that come into the water features we put out, plus all the strange plants we put in these areas. Lots of non-native and native species coexist. Incredible diversity, hundreds of species of plants in in suburban areas where naturally there might have been 20 or 30. And so the birds, which are able to to get around in these places relatively easily because of their wings, they can exploit all that diversity of resource. Urbanization certainly results in winners and losers, though. Some species, you say, become refugees in this environment, while others adapt to or even exploit our way of life. The most successful of these bird species, you say, are the Fab Five. Now, this is not a reference to the Fab Four and the Beatles, uh, but... These are five species that have thrived in urban environments. What are they? Well, they're the house sparrow, or you might know it as the English sparrow, and the European starling. Both of those are non-native here in North America, but of course they're native in European cities. But they've done well here. They've done very well here. Uh, Then the mallard and the Canada goose, Mm -hmm. which because of duck fancying have basically been able to get everywhere. And then the fifth one is probably the most common bird of all, and that's the rock pigeon, it's called officially, or just the feral pigeon. Can you give us an example of one of them and why they've adapted so well to our urban and suburban environments? Well, I think we should take the Canada goose. I mean, that's one that a lot of people thrill at the sight of. I know growing up, there was nothing better than a flight of Canada geese that would come over honking. It really signals the change of seasons, right, as they migrated. I think mostly of their poop. Yes, most people think of their poop and uh, all the destruction they do in the, the grasslands that we've now created. So that's an example. The reason Canada geese are so abundant now is that they're not hunted in urban areas and we've planted turf everywhere, which geese love. That's what they eat. They're grazers. So we basically made goose nirvana. But of course, these places weren't always goose nirvana. So has something else moved out because they've moved in? I mean, that obviously would change the the, the balance of the ecosystem somewhat, wouldn't it? Well, for sure. When the habitat was changed, when it was converted from whatever it was to turf grass, all those species that were reliant on that native habitat, especially the ones that are fairly sensitive to our presence and our activity, they moved out for sure. I mean, I think of the sage-grouse, which has been at the center of a lot of attention in the West, uh, not necessarily one that's been in very urban environments, 
but one that is really sensitive to uh, oil and gas drilling in rural environments, fire, Habitat conversion. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are losers. You say 10% of modern birds are at risk of extinction because of our enterprise. What are, what are some examples of other species that haven't adapted so well? Well, here in the kind of this interface between the mountains and the prairies, all of the species that really utilize short grass, they've suffered a lot here. The so, kind of brown stuff we've gotten rid of in favor of green stuff. Exactly. And so, I mean, it looks better to us. It looks more productive, and, and in some ways it is, but it's, it's detrimental to species um, that require those areas. Like, like the state bird of Colorado, the lark bunting has been declining. And that's a good example of where we've converted grasslands to our liking, they've uh, suffered. And that's a bird that probably could live very well with people. They are along roads routinely, and all we need is native short grass prairie on our lawns instead of industrial turf grass, and we'd, we'd have lark buntings in your yard. You're listening to Colorado Matters, and Ryan Warner is speaking with ornithologist John Marsloff of the University of Washington. His book is called Welcome to Suburbia. Marsla studies how development, which there is a lot of in the West, affects wildlife, especially birds. Coming up, birds that live in unexpected places, like inside a Costco. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin now our conversation with ornithologist John Marsloff. He writes about how birds and other wildlife adapt to cities in his book, Welcome to Suburbia. Marsloff spoke with Ryan Warner. City birds find soffits and street lamps to be irresistible homes. You even write about birds that seem to have built a home for themselves in a Costco, Um, (laughs) like the big box store. Yeah. Tell us about the Costco birds. The bird that I'm talking about here is the Brewer's Blackbird, and it's actually a common bird throughout Colorado. It is a grassland species, naturally, but when we pave and put up little shrubbery borders to big parking lots, this bird flocks in and loves these places. And I was really intrigued because I'd go to the store and shoot, these birds were all over the parking lot and I never saw a dead one. I couldn't really figure out how they ever uh, really survived there. So I thought I need to get there early one day and ban them and monitor them and see how they live and, and how long they actually survive in this seriously concrete jungle that's kind of their preferred habitat. Right. You're talking about a sliver in between a parking lot and a sidewalk. Yeah. I mean, nothing that you would consider habitat at all. But yet this bird crams its nests in there. They actually nest in colonies within these little shrub borders. But I got there early in the morning to avoid people and the birds weren't around either. The birds actually didn't show up at the Costco by my house until five minutes of 10 that morning. And the Costco opens at 10 o'clock. And they just immediately lined up, literally queued up with the people that were waiting also to get in the store on this morning. And the birds actually beat the people in the store and immediately started uh, looking around for scraps at the cafe. They were in a nice, warm, dry environment. Perfect habitat for these birds. But they don't have a membership card, so Costco might frown on that. I don't know. (laughs) I can't get in with that. I don't know how they do. (laughs) The point is that some birds have been just incredibly adaptable. Yeah. It makes me wonder if the adaptability we're seeing in birds is actually a form of like microevolution. Is it that species are truly evolving to live in urban environments? And are there signs of that in their bodies or their genetics? Oh, most definitely. There's some great examples of that. Um, we don't know that the birds living in buildings are different yet. That's a pretty new thing and, you know, in and out. 
of buildings. But good examples of experiments done on dark-eyed juncos, what you may know as snowbirds. They're here this time of year in large numbers because a lot have migrated down from the north. And um, in suburban areas, the female juncos prefer males that are not very aggressive, which is in contrast to the wild kind of country where females prefer very aggressive defensive males that adequately defend territory for them to raise their brood or two in the year on. Presumably, you wouldn't want aggressive males in the city because they wouldn't fare very well in that compact environment with lots of other birds. So they've started to get nicer, basically. And they'll, they would spend all their time attacking one another. And instead of doing that, the females prefer these mellower males, nicer males that also take care of young better and spend more time with the brood so the females can lay more and more eggs and do better and better. The city female juncos want a laid-back, cool guy. A smooth guy. A smooth sure. guy versus the rural ones yeah. that want someone that's more aggressive. Right. And this is a form of evolution. This is a form of, of natural selection. Sexual selection is what it is that Darwin described when females exert this choice on males. And like the peacock's tail evolves to be dramatic, the junco's tail actually evolves to be less white because of this. Uh, that's a mellower male, one that has less white in its tail. Bird expert John Marsliff of the University of Washington is talking with Ryan Warner. He stopped by CPR while in town to speak at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And when we come back, more of his Ten Commandments for coexisting with wildlife. But your HOA might not like one of them, just letting you know right now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Wildlife has to adjust quickly when land that was once empty gets developed. Ornithologist John Marsliff writes about this in his book, Welcome to Suburbia. Let's rejoin his conversation now with Ryan Warner. I was fascinated to read about woodpeckers in your book. First of all, when you type in woodpeckers and Colorado into Google, the first hit you get is preventing woodpecker damage to your home. (laughs) Right. So here's this idea that humans and woodpeckers might not get along very well. And yet, it's a much more complicated relationship because woodpeckers pave the way for other birds to come into an ecosystem. Can we talk about woodpeckers in the city and suburbs? Absolutely. Um, The paving of the way, we call it facilitation. And by drilling holes that they nest in or that they roost for the night in, that provides shelter for other species to use, like bluebirds and chickadees, for example. So having them is very important for the ecosystem. It, it allows the ecosystem to be much more diverse than it would be without woodpeckers. And in the wildland, of course, they're drilling into dead trees. That's their preferred habitat. And they eat insects out of dead trees. They perform that service for the forest, removing some pests and also providing this pathway for other species to use. Um, but in the city... There aren't many dead trees because people don't like dead trees in their yard. We tend to take them out, clean it up, and so there aren't a lot of spaces for woodpeckers. So overall, woodpeckers have declined in the city uh, because of this. And that means fewer homes for other birds, which might make a home out of what the woodpeckers create. Absolutely. It emphasizes the need to, to celebrate dead trees, really, where they're in safe places in the city. And... Um, they, they perform an incredible function by being there and allowing woodpeckers and then the other species to utilize them. This is another one of your commandments. Leave some dead stuff, people. Yeah, keep it a little messy. We don't have to have things pristine and all ordered. We like that as a, as a species ourselves, but not many other species do. So by keeping it messy, the ground a little scruffier, 
piles of dead uh, material around that are rotting and providing structure to that habitat. That's important for a lot of birds to utilize. And dead trees especially, standing dead trees, very important. Standing dead trees. And who might call that home if you left that? Well, there'd be a whole host of of insects that would first use it, and fungi, the the real recyclers and the the critical guts of the ecosystem that recycle the nutrients in in the the dead carbon, basically the carbon that's left in the dead tree. And then woodpecker is going to be right in. You're going to get flickers. They'll be the most common, and they're the ones that if they don't have a dead tree, they're going to be on your house drilling a hole in that trying to, to make a place to nest. Now, they may still get on your house and pound on the stovepipe, because that makes them sound huge. And that's what they're trying to do is advertise better their territory. (laughs) So they might still uh, tick you off a little bit in the morning, but they're not going to destroy your house if there's enough dead trees around. And then the whole succession of nuthatches and chickadees, swallows and bluebirds, wrens, all the species that people really enjoy having around for their beauty and their song, um, they utilize those cavities left over by woodpeckers. And yet having a messier lawn and maybe having dead trees might lure another species, the president of the HOA (laughs) or the Neighborhood Association. Absolutely. So what you're describing is in stark contrast to what some of the rules and expectations are on our properties. And they are. And um, this has been brought up by, by people who've had to deal with their HOA president to me. And they've, they've handled it in the following way. They've said, do you really want me to destroy the habitat for the Pacific chorus frog and the Pacific wren or whatever that species might be of concern in your area? Uh, and demonstrate that by allowing my lawn to be a little messier or not applying fertilizers and chemicals, I've made better habitat for this uh, interesting species? You don't get much argument when you bring it up that way. And I think eventually these get codified into HOA rules like Keep your cats inside in Bozeman, Montana. But how you maintain your lawn isn't just a question, you say, of attracting or not attracting species. It has uh, deeper environmental roots. Can I have you read a section of the book that has to do with your top commandment? Do not covet your neighbor's lawn. To maintain this sea of grass, Americans annually spend $30 billion U.S. dollars. They use 800 million gallons of gas, 7 billion gallons of water, 3 million tons of nitrogen fertilizer, and 30,000 tons of pesticide. The use of pesticides alone is 10 times greater than used by the average farmer and includes chemicals that disrupt normal hormone function and reproduction and are suspected to cause cancer, and they're even banned in other countries. Simply filling up gas-powered lawnmowers is an ecological disaster of the highest order, 17 million gallons of gas are spilled annually. That amount is more than was spilled by the Exxon Valdez in 1989, and every 12 years would equal the amount spewed into the Gulf of Mexico during the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. That was shocking to me when I read it. Shocking to me as well. Yeah. Is that stuff you knew going into Not the the magnitude. I mean, anybody who's mowed a lawn has spilled a little gas, so it makes sense. But... There are ways around that. Electric mowers will get around that component. But all the energy that's put into maintaining this sea of grass is just out of proportion to what it really contributes. And again, may not be maintaining the biodiversity that you could otherwise be maintaining. Definitely isn't. You could do much better with native grasses that require less care if you're in a grassland area like around here or shrubs. You also suggest minimizing outdoor lighting at night because it can be disorienting for birds. 
Uh, at CPRnews.org, you can hear about the first communities in Colorado to win a Dark Skies designation. Fantastic. These are communities that have turned off those unnecessary lights at night. And you say, make your windows more visible to birds that fly near them. Why and how? Well, crashing into windows uh, by birds because they don't see them. They see them either as reflected habitat from the outside. It looks like a tree when it's not, or as a passageway. That accounts, that's the second greatest source of mortality for free-ranging birds. Behind cats. Behind cats. But still, a half a billion birds a year in the U.S. and and lots in other countries as well crash into windows and die. And it's a different subset of birds than, than cats get. Because these are typically fast flyers or migrants like thrushes, um, the Swainson's thrush here or even the robin. Uh, And then a hawk that might be chasing them can crash into your windows as well. So you can make them more visible pretty easily. Screening does that. Paned windows do that. Putting um, netting on the outside if you want to go a little bit extreme really isn't so visible from the inside. And that's a great barrier. Or you can get stickers to put on them. And most people are familiar with the black silhouettes of hawks and things. And and those are okay. They don't really scare the bird, but they obscure some of the open area. But you could also get ultraviolet reflective stickers, which are easier for us to see through because we don't really register ultraviolet in our eyes, but birds do. So they see them as a big barrier, and we see them as kind of a blurry spot. Uh, You touch on how other species, not just birds, adapt to urbanization, species that aren't lucky enough to be able to fly away if the going gets tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are species that slither and crawl, for instance. Tell us about the road in East Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, that you talk about in the book. Yeah, it's fabulous. It, this is a road that basically comes between a breeding pond of spotted salamanders and an upland uh, wintering area for these animals. It's not an uncommon situation. Salamanders and frogs often migrate between the ponds they breed in, which are dangerous also, and more secluded places where they can spend the rest of the year. And by crossing the road during this migration, literally, a, you know, a, basically a living river of salamanders, spotted salamanders crossing the road, thousands were getting slaughtered by cars. So the neighborhood there just said, enough of that. And let's celebrate this migration and let's have a block party for a few nights every spring and again in the autumn when they leave and uh, celebrate this great diversity that's coming through the area and interesting animals and, and they have a potluck and they, and they celebrate it and they just shut the roads down so the salamanders can cross peacefully. And I suppose the, the, sto- the story there is that communities could be doing more yeah. to make room for species and their crossings and their ways of life. I mean, what would you say to, I don't know, a city planner or a city leader of some kind who is hearing this conversation? Well, I think there's several things they can do, and many are already doing it. And that is really thinking about conservation design when they're planning, master planning their communities. This is something that has to be done at a big scale. I mean, we can all work in our own yards and make those a little more suitable and and more sustainable for wildlife. But really, it takes a much larger area to effectively conserve animals. So the city planner, the city manager, when they're master planning their area, they can look at connections and corridors. They can look at the riparian areas along streams and make sure there's some habitat left along there. It's not all built up to or not all recreated right up to the edge of the water. It's really expanding your understanding of traffic patterns and not just thinking of the automobile, but of all kinds of things that need to circulate. Exactly. There's a lot of movement out there. Some of it has to walk. And um, that's difficult if, if 
every place they put a foot is on a a pavement or across a railroad track or something like that. I know there's been some conversation in Colorado about having a wildlife crossing over I-70, for Mm. instance, uh, an overpass for wildlife. And this has been done in other places. It has. It's been done in Canada. They're working on one in uh, outside of my home in Seattle. But even small underpasses are very effective. Mountain lions will cross through there and, and smaller animals. And even pipes are put in places like Palo Alto under the road to allow salamanders to move underneath the roadway. And you notice a little bit of a speed bump as you're driving, but really nothing else. So hmm. on different sorts of roads, different uh, techniques could be very effective. John Marsliff is a professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington. He spoke to Ryan Warner about his book, Welcome to Suburbia, sharing our neighborhoods with wrens, robins, woodpeckers, and other wildlife. Read an excerpt and see his Ten Commandments at cprnews.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. Our director for today is Michael Dayuana. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of the page and then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Music.